Hello and welcome to another episode of the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host as always, John F. Taylor. And we are brought to you today by our partners, of course, Herpeticulture House E-Zine or Herpeticulture House Magazine. Uh, you can find us at herphousemag.com. And uh, do really encourage you to subscribe. It's uh, 10 bucks a subscription right now. So jump on in there, grab the latest copy or the latest subscription. We'd greatly appreciate it. Once again, it's herphousemag.com. And we will put that in the show notes, a uh, little link there for you. And in today's episode, we are talking with none other than Ray Morgan, who spent countless hours on the road and in the field with today's top herpetologists, talking to them about how they got into snakes, um, basically how they got into reptiles, period, not just snakes, and talks to them about venom and everything and anything you ever wanted to know about venom. I've seen a couple of the video clips that Ray has uh, allowed me to see, and it's just, it's going to be a phenomenal film. You guys definitely have to check it out. Uh, you can find the venom interviews. Uh, right there in the link on the show notes, uh, so you can go to the Facebook page, like it, and you know check it out there, and talk to Ray personally on Facebook as well. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Ray Morgan from the Venom Interviews. So today we're on the uh, line with Ray Morgan of Venom Interviews. We've been trying to contact Ray for a little bit now, but due to scheduling conflicts and Ray chasing snakes all over, you know, seems like all over the United States, it's kind of a hard guy to get a hold of, so we're uh, very happy to finally get in contact with you, Ray. So, Thank you. So, um, for those that don't know, for whatever odd reason, I guess they've been under a rock, what is the Venom Interviews, I guess, is the best place to start with this? Okay, well, the Venom Interviews is a documentary film that covers all of the professions and professional people who have found various ways to make a living uh, in connection with venomous herpetology in one way or the other, and that includes everything from zoologists to biologists to... Uh, researchers and grad students, uh, to people who work in venom extraction facilities, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, reproduction, all of those kinds of uh, things. Uh, people in the private sector, advanced private keepers, as well as what you would think of as more traditional professions uh, in the field. So the, the film is a, it's kind of a survey of all of those professions, and it's meant to give a, really it's meant to give a more factual balanced and realistic view of the subject than is typical in the media today. <laughs> Funny you should mention that with all the, you know, the pythons are, you know, annihilating the Everglades and they're going to start, you know, coming out of the swamps and eating humans any day now. Yeah, that was the most diplomatic way I could put it. Most of the, the media that's out there now is just such nonsense. It's just, it's just worthless. And yeah. There are some some really nice exceptions to that. The stuff that, um, you know, some of the stuff that uh, BBC has done with Ron Whitaker. Uh, oh my gosh! Some of that stuff is just is just phenomenal. There's some things that, you know, uh, David Attenborough has done. Yes. That are just that's just phenomenal, and the days of that kind of media, I think, are sadly behind us, or at least they're dormant right now. And what kind of kicked off this project, and there were actually a couple of scenes in a couple of these programs in particular that set me off, and without going into specifically what they are or who, who they were, it just, it just just set me off in that the, the coverage is so bad, and it's so sensationalized, and it's so fear-driven, and it's so hyperbole-driven that what really struck me is you can take, you can get rid of the you know, get rid of the host, get rid of the lights and the camera crew, and there's, you know, there's a, 
a hundred or so people in North America, maybe you know, maybe two hundred people, that make their living day in and day out with these animals. And that's interesting all by itself, even if you don't put the haunted house music behind it, <laughs> and you and you, you have r- ridiculous camera work. There's work that these people are doing that is incredibly interesting, mm. and I thought that that would be a good subject to cover. It turns out that it has been. Yeah, I I can't even imagine because you know you and I have talked on a couple of occasions briefly about some of the people that you've had the opportunity to work with, you know, uh, Reaper, you know, Dr. Fry, you know, and just some of these people that, you know, and spent time with them in the field or, you know, in their facilities. And, uh, yeah, that, that to me is, is like, you know, damn near getting to work with Attenborough or, you know, Marlon Perkins or, you know, one of those guys. So what's it like to work with these people that are so, you know, well, in the reptile community, anyway, so well known that you know, what's it like to work with them? Are they, are they? I guess what I'm trying to say, are they real people, or are they, you know, snobbish and you know? No, you know what? You know what has been amazing. Well, there's been um, several things that are amazing. Uh, I was I went back to Florida a, a few months ago, and I spent another a couple extra days at Carl Barton's facility with uh, Oh yeah, with Carl and, and Denise, and. Uh, talk about two of the most genuine, warmest, high-quality human beings you'll ever want to meet. Um, you know, they're just fantastic. And so Carl asked at one point, he said, well, you know, what have you learned? What's been surprising in the course of doing the project? And, and the, oh, first yeah. thing, well, the first thing that was surprising is that anybody would talk to me at all. Um, right. Because of the fact that a lot of them have been burned pretty badly by, by the media. In fact, probably... I don't want to exaggerate here, but probably no. about about half of them, uh, within the first minute or two of the conversation, I call up and say, "Hey, I'm doing this thing." They would respond with some version of, "This is not for Animal Planet, is it?" Or "This is not for right." It's not this show or that show or this channel or that channel. There's a tremendous sensitivity in the uh, within the community about the way they're portrayed in the media, and I think justifiably so. Yeah. Uh, now, that said, uh, I did a pretty good job, I think, of what, what I called originally filtering for crazy, which is to, <laughs> to, to really, I, I, I didn't want to include the type of material that's, you know, the fear factor style of, right. of, of media. I, I, like I said, I, I'm interested in people who do scientific work in, 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 at one level or another. And so I did a pretty good job, I think, of, of, of filtering those out. And so to get back to your original question, what was it like? Well, it turned out that filter worked so well that the people I got to work with were just, I mean, just amazing. And, um, you know, no attitude, no ego at, at all. Um, you know, just wonderful, across the board, incredibly high-quality people to work with. Um you know, I, I mentioned Carl and Denise. There's, there's people like, uh, you know, like Leslie Boyer, who just, you know, her her descriptions are of various subjects and <laughs> answers to various questions. It just left me on the floor. Yeah. I, I mean, her when I, uh, you know, I ask one of the questions that I ask everybody is, you know, well, how did you get started? How does this? How does the bug bite? How does this begin? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the story she, she gave me, I won't ruin it, but the story she gave me left me on the floor. I actually had to turn the camera off and 
recompose myself. <laughs> it, was, it, it was such an amazing, it was such an amazing story. But the, you know, the the kind of bottom line is that all of these people who make their living in these professions today, out of about forty or so people I talked to, I think all but two of them. I think I have that right. I think it's all but two of them started as kids. They started you know, collecting stuff in the backyard. They started collecting stuff you know, wherever they could find it. And most of them, between the ages of about six and ten years old, and some of them younger than that. So, you know, the bug bites early. So you look at people like uh, like Leslie. You look at people like, like Brian Fry. You look at people like Carl, uh, like Denise. You know... Um, Carl Person out at Loma Linda. Yeah. Even, even Bill Hayes, out of, they're also at Loma Linda. You know, it, it, with all these guys, it starts as a kid. Right, you, right. You run down the list and, you know, you can talk to, you can talk to Terry Phillip or, or Mark Seward and all, it's the same story. The bug bites young. And for some percentage of people who get interested early on, it sticks and it sticks for life. Right, right, definitely. And then for those those people who have to manage to convert it into some kind of livelihood, uh, that's just an incredibly interesting thing to me. Yeah, I mean to you know start collecting snakes, then you know of any type, and then make it into you know a career. That's just well, it's hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's darn near impossible. Right, it really it really is hard. I mean, you have. And you look at the diversity of fields that people end up working in. So people end up, um, you know, people end up reproducing animals for, you know, for the for the private keeper, the private trade. Um, you know, people end up doing field work. Um, you have Brian Fry bouncing all over the world, collecting animals and venom samples, and then, you know, working with venoms that nobody else has because he he, he goes out and gets them. Um, you have a very small handful of people who, who have a, uh, it's almost a calling, it's probably the best way to describe it. So Carl, Jim, and George, the, the, the three guys who run the three best-known venom labs in the country, venom extraction facilities. Right. Uh, you talk to them, and it's almost, uh, there, there's an aspect of it that seems to be almost a calling. And you look at a profession where, statistically speaking, you have a hundred percent chance of being bitten multiple times over your life. <laughs> and I mean, you know, some of them are awful. I mean, you know, Carl's the only person I know who's been bitten by three out of four species of mummies. He had a, uh, he had an eastern diamondback bite him in the face. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, Denise has had a, had a, you know, a, a couple of pretty good bites, and you know, you, know, you, you talk to Jim Harrison and George Van Horn, and they've all had. They've all had their, their share of some pretty serious incidents. And to go into that field, and you you know, you hear people say, oh, you know, I, all i, I, I got to do is get a bunch of snakes and you know, juice them and sell their venom. Man, there is a lot more to it than that. Yeah. <laughs> it goes so far beyond that. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, the dedication that it takes to, you know, to do that as a business. And, you know, running it as a business is so much more than having snakes and extracting venom from them not to me and just set aside the hundreds of thousands of hands-on interactions that you got with these animals i mean you're talking about you're talking about putting your hands on the dangerous end of some of the most dangerous animals on the planet right 
hundreds of thousands of times. Yeah. And even if, you know, you get it right 99.999% of the time, hundreds of thousands is a big multiplier. Right, right. And even if things go wrong very, very, very rarely, you know, if you hit the law of large numbers, you do it enough and there are going to be accidents. And I, I, I think when people look romantically at what it would be like to, you know, to, to collect venom for a living, I think there's a lot of, lot of practical kind of nuts and bolts aspects of that that, you know, we just, we just kind of set aside and don't think about it. And, you know, you don't, you don't think about what it takes to go out and get business and do the accounting and get the licensing and, and comply with all the regulatory stuff you got to deal with. And, you know, not to mention being engaged with your local hospital and, and stuff like that. Well, you, you have to have a very close relationship with them. They have to know you by name when you show up with, you know, a, a black mamba bite at four in the afternoon when, you know, on a holiday weekend when the staff... And, you know, that's one of the things I've, I've seen numerous times in the uh, various reptile forums and uh, for venomous keepers is have the emergency contact list but also have an emergency contact list for your ho- for your local hospital, so that they know when you call them up and tell them, you know, hey, I just took a hit from a black mamba. They're not going to sit there and ask you twenty questions to make sure you actually identify the snake right. Yeah, <laughs> while you're dying. You know? yeah, well, that's what you're describing is exactly what uh, well, I, I keep using Carl's facility as an example because he has such a good relationship with the hospital. Right. They proactively invite them into the facility, and you know you hear Carl's interview where he talks about you know we want them to be on a first name basis with us. We want them so when the nine one one call comes in, that where the reptile discovery center, Medtoxin Labs, comes up on that screen, they know that they can bypass a bunch of those questions. They right. They were advised. They probably have some idea how bad the bite what might be. Right. Right. Exactly. They know you know, they know what well, they know what antivenom to use, which the hospital for exotic species, the hospital's not gonna have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the other biggest thing. You know, that's something that um, has always intrigued me about and we'll we'll cover this more in depth in a bit, about private sector keepers not understanding or not realizing or not caring, one of the three, about, you know, when you keep an exotic venomous animal, the hospital Probably is not going to have the the antivenin for that. They're almost never going to have. It. <laughs> no. Well, for, here, here's the reason. So hospitals are bound by all kinds of very heavy regulation. Oh my gosh, of, yes. A lot of which comes from the FDA. So exotic antivenins, they're they're animal products from a foreign country. They, you know, they're not. You know, hospitals can't provide them. They're not FDA approved. Uh, they're not FDA approved really? drugs. Yeah, they they can't. Okay, this is this is new to me. So yeah, please explain. I'm all ears yeah. now. So they, they can't stock them. So here's the the situation you find yourself in. So somebody in you know a state like uh, Florida where you can be licensed to keep the snakes, sure. but you you almost certainly cannot be licensed to either import or keep the antidote. Um, that's a really tough situation. Wow. Now, now with Miami Dade. Uh, Al Cruz and Jeff Fobb and their crew down there at uh, Venom One. Venom One, yeah. They've got, you know, they have coverage for just about anything that you're likely to be bitten by that there is anti-venom for. They're, they're likely to have it. And in a lot of cases, 
uh, cases, you have several choices of you know, what to use. Um, but if you're in, you know, let's say you're in Texas, and you have, uh, you know, you have uh, a, a very an unusual snake. You've got, uh, you know, a boomslang or something. Which, you know, there is a, uh, an African antivenom for boomslangs, but you're not going to find that in every hospital. You're not going to necessarily find it in every zoo. Wow. And for that matter, the zoo is not under any obligation to give it to you. <laughs> now, oh. now, wow. I didn't I even think about that. that. Well, yeah, you don't think of it, but you know, if, if a zoo keeps boom slangs, they have that antivenom for their... For their employees. Yeah, that's for their staff. And that antivenom might cost thousands and thousands of dollars, and it might take months to do the paperwork to get it imported. Right. So you show up in, in Dallas with a boomslang bite, and you raid the refrigerator there at the zoo. Right, right. And I've never heard of a zoo refusing to provide, I've never heard of a zoo turning somebody down. I mean, you've got a life and death situation. Sure. A life and death situation. But there's all kinds of complexity about what it takes to get that administered, uh, what it takes to get it replaced. A lot of times, historically, zoos have not been compensated for thousands oh, and thousands oh, and thousands of dollars worth of Oh, wow. You know how zoos are. Zoos don't have any money. No, they so, don't. <laughs> They're constantly broke. Yeah, so if you, you know, you rate a zoo of, you know, ten or $15,000 worth of antivenom, that's a big deal. Now, let me ask you this, and I'm not, you know, saying that you actually, you know, have the information, but... I know from uh, crotalus bites, typical, you know, with no complications, is at least five vials of antivenom. Is uh, that is that go across the board for exotic species or? Yeah, I think le uh, the step that Leslie used was that they her patients received an average of at least twenty vials. Holy and Christ! I know of another hospital here in California where I think the. Their in-house protocol for, you know, speaking of crowfab, so for local rattlesnake bites, it's the only venomous snake we have here in California. Right. Um, their protocol calls for 24, a minimum of 24 vials over wow. a period of time. Um, so it's, it's horrifically expensive. Um, I mean, you know, I, I've heard people talk about, you know, you know, this could cost $10,000. Well, you can't get bit by a dog for 10000 You can't get stung by a bee for $10,000. Moderate rattlesnake bite is going to set you back or set somebody back between one hundred and fifty and two hundred fifty thousand dollars if it's not complicated. Right. That's my. That's minus any anaphylaxis or any, um, you know, uh, reconstructive surgery. Right. Reconstructive surgery from um, necrosis and what have you. Oh my gosh. Okay. So since we're talking about it. <laughs> We have to. Uh, we have to go. And I'm sure this is going to tick off a lot of people, but I really don't care because it's my show and deal with it. Right. What's your What's your take? And I and I will also express my take on it. Uh, private keepers and venomous reptiles. Well, I, I think ultimately ugh, that's a, that's a, a really complicated question. <laughs> I'll go first if you want me to. <laughs> well, it, it, Go first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how I kind of arrived at where I am okay. right now. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I believe if properly educated 
and certified <clears throat> through a program set up possibly by the state, but not necessarily, but some type of certification program where someone that has a lot more experience, for lack of a better term, than you currently do, um, say if you were to be instructed or be certified by um, Venom 1 in Florida, for instance, you know, I would be okay with it, but still not totally sold on you know, private keepers of venomous snakes, because I, and this is a big admission for me, I've owned venomous stuff here in California, um, <clears throat> used to keep it uh, for presentations uh, that we would do for school kids, uh, one day came home after the day job, walked in the house, my uh, girlfriend at the time was in the shower, my son was sitting on the couch, and her daughter was also sitting on the couch, and I was walking down the hallway, and I saw the stick on the floor. And now, mind you, about three days prior to this, I had picked up this tiny, uh, maybe a hatchling, or not, I don't want to say hatchling because uh, they don't lay eggs, but uh, born that spring, um, Southern Pacific rattlesnake, uh, Crotus heleri, and uh, put it in this enclosure with the sliding glass front doors. And, you know, yes, there was a gap between the doors, but. Being the intelligent guy that I am, I rolled up newspaper and stuffed it between these sliding glass doors where the gap was, tall enough where, for, where assuredly a rattlesnake could not get that vertical and climb out. Well, I picked up said stick and said stick moved very rapidly. <laughs> this damn little, you know, six to eight inch rattlesnake had literally somehow either crawled beneath the newspaper or had actually gotten vertical enough to crawl up over it. Yeah, they, they, can, they can get very, very flat and fit into very small crevices. Never again have I ever kept venomous stuff. <laughs> well, I, I, to, to get back to your what you were talking about in terms of certification, um, yeah. actually what you described is very much like what the licensing program in Florida looks like. Oh, cool. So you have a 1,000-hour training requirements under a mentor who's already licensed mm -hmm. um, and then that person signs off on on you and you're eligible to get a license and you pay the fees and um, the requirements are that you, know, you have certain caging requirements escape proof cages and escape proof room yeah. um, and so all of these things that you're going to be inspected for and expected to abide by and if you, you meet those requirements, and they're fairly stringent requirements, then I, I think that's fine. Now, I had started up this project before I started filming or really started talking to anybody. I had originally thought that, you know what, I'm, I'm not really going to include the, the private sector in this. Um, for one thing, it's a big topic. It probably deserves its own, you know, it d deserves its own coverage, and this is probably a pretty big topic to begin with. Sure. But pretty clearly, it uh, you know, pretty early it became clear that there's just no real way to separate the private keepers from uh, from the institutional or the more traditional definition of a professional keeper because there is so much overlap. Because almost all of them came from the private sector, almost all of them have still have private collections. You know, Terry Phillip up at uh, Black Hills Reptile Garden has the most diverse, complete collection 
of venomous reptiles, I believe, anywhere in the world. And as if, that, as if that enormous collection at his day job isn't enough, he's got a house full of pythons at home that he breeds. So <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought he just had the venomous stuff. That's hilarious. Yeah. So it's um, and that's that's true. You know, like, you know, Doug Hodel over at Albuquerque. He's got a you know beautiful collection there. Oh yeah. The, the Rio Grande Zoo, and you know, it, one of the, the animals that he brought in the day he was there was this. Enormous, spectacular mangrove snake, and I'm a big, I'm a big fan of boygas. I like them a lot. I love mangroves. Oh yeah, definitely. He, he has he pulled this one out of a bucket that was all of seven feet long. Just a big, beautiful, healthy, wow, healthy animal, and that was part of his private collection. And you you go down the list of all of these people, and the lines between their professional work and their private personal fascination with the animals is not that sharp. It's a Wow, it's a, it's a very gentle gradient between their personal and professional life, and really, you, you go back to how they got into it. Well, they got into it as kids, as private keepers. Um, for most of them, it really was an evolution of a uh, of their personal fascination that evolved into a profession, and mm -hmm. the, the personal side of that just it never wore off. It never went away. Yeah. Now, speaking of you know evolution of the mindset. You know, that's kind of how I got into it, you know, because the first time I ever saw a king snake eat and, you know, without seeing it through the glass tube of a TV, that's what hooked me. I was like, wow, this is, that's just insane. And then I learned about, I mean, I always knew there was rattlesnakes in California and stuff like that, but we never encountered them as often as someone would say in Texas or, you know, some of the other states. Um, so then I start, you know, I saw a couple of programs about uh, venomous snakes and what have you, and I was just floored. I was like, you know, okay, so now we have king snakes, but then we have these venomous things that could, you know, that destroy tissue and do all these weird things. But look at this other end, they're making drugs out of it to save people's lives. This is incredible. This is fascinating stuff. Do you see that same evolution in the people that you've interviewed, going from you know non-venomous to venomous stuff. Well, there's yeah, there is a, there is a little bit of a of a, uh, uh, it's a, I don't, I'm not sure if it's an evolution or if it's just a diversity of interests. I mean, there's okay, there certainly are people who are interested in the animals for the wrong reasons, for reasons of ego, or they're mm. interested in them because they're dangerous. Um, that. When I, when I talked about filtering for crazy, I lost a lot of those. <laughs> so I, I love that uh, term, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. Well, it was it was necessary. <laughs> oh, no, it is. Trust me. I, I've run into some of the same people, I'm sure, that you have over the years. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, and, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put myself in danger with people, you know, dealing with people who are reckless. And really, the, the, there's... Reckless has lots of coverage out there. There's no shortage of that. I was interested in going, Ugh. you know, in, in doing what hadn't been done and focusing more on, on the profession. So uh, the people that, that I, I dealt with for the Venom interviews were primarily, uh, they were people that had a medical interest or a biological interest uh, right. in the animals. And the fact that they happened to be venomous was, was largely secondary. Um, Maybe with the exception of Venom Labs, where you know, Venom Lab without venomous animals is not very interesting. Yeah. But the, uh, but all of the others, um, you know, the the fact that 
that a lot, well, I'll, I'll speak personally, because I started, I started this out thinking, you know, well, why, why am I interested in these? And I'm, I'm interested in a lot of snakes, you know, venomous or not, but I like kind of oddball stuff. I think, you know, to keep, uh, you know, things like flying snakes or, oh, you know, oh man. Snakes, or, you know, I mentioned boigas, which are not real common in a lot of collections. Um, you know, I was a huge fan of indigo snakes, just love indigo snakes. And yeah. Those are out there, but they're not around, but, you know, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more magnificent creature. Um, and now that uh, my, my wife and I were planning on moving out of the country, and that's delayed a little bit, and so the collection that I had thinned way out and starting to, to build up again now, so I've got a pair of Moseranas coming. And, <laughs> you know, you don't see those very often. And so, um, I, you know, I, the things that I find fascinating are things that are, you know, the things you don't see every day. Like, I... I, I can't take the sight of another ball python. I can't, you know, a, another corn snake. Just it's 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 kind of been done, and you know, venomous yeah. or not. Yeah, I I kind of feel that same. I guess the same sense of species fatigue. Maybe you could call it with, you know, Western diamondbacks. Western diamondbacks are they're a very common animal, and yeah, yeah, they're venomous, but they're they're common to the point that you know they're. Maybe there's an element of specialness to them that's lost in how common they are. Where, whereas you take something like you know a, a blue Malaysian coral snake, which is just unbelievably difficult to keep alive, or a fees viper, which you know I oh, hear dear people Lord. have you know, to keep them alive. And you know there there was debate a long time about what in fact they were. They're talking about a snake where there was debate about whether it was an elapid or a viper. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna uh, say. <laughs> I remember that discussion. And those are, you know, that makes an animal interesting to me. If there's if there's stuff, uh, you know, that's not known about them, how they live. You know, there's um, a species um, called Xenoderma javasinta from um, uh, from Indonesia, or Southeast Asia. Right, right. Uh, it's called a dragon snake, and it is the most bizarre-looking creature you've ever seen. I would love to have one. Right. Um, I. You know, I'd love to learn how to keep them alive. You know, now, you know, speaking of bizarre snakes, real quickly here, did you just did you recently see that one with the centipede-looking tail? Yes. Oh my God, that thing is so freaking cool! I so want one. Yeah, there's. There, there's <laughs> like, well, you look at there's you know there's there's features that, um, you know, like, like bushmasters have. Uh, you know, oh. It's it's not the not the same kind of. Uh, tail but they have you know no but it is caught alluring well they have they have a you know the, their structure their tails a little bit different from the, the scalation on the tail is different from you know just about anything else um, and those little those little interesting details um, right yeah uh, another snake that's you know that for many years there was not a whole lot known about bushmasters and now yeah with work you, you mentioned Dean Ripa and you know he <laughs> he's probably kept more of them than anybody I can think of anyway uh, yeah I would tend to agree with that very definitely has, a, has an enormous collection and a beautiful facility there and, uh, in the Cape Fear Serpentarium is just a you know it's a spectacular exhibit it's a, it's a great facility and has a big collection of these snakes that you know 30 years ago there was debate about whether you could keep them alive and now they're not only kept alive but they're, they're bred in captivity you know 
somewhat routinely. And with that, we are going to conclude part one of the Reptile Living Room interviewing uh, Ray Morgan of the Venom Interviews. And we are going to catch up with Ray in part two, where we will finish out the interview. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>